spoiler alert, I've totally changed my view of Thomas. All right. Thomas. Yeah, well, I don't know. Same as everybody's, right? That doubter. Uh, John 20, 19 through 29. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of uh, the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where his nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord, my God. Then Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So you all know what comes right before this and right after this in the Gospel of John. Uh, I talked a little bit in talking about the resurrection narrative in Luke about how the resurrection narrative works in John. And, you know, we've got the stone rolled away and the angel of the Lord and appearance to, uh, to Mary at, at the tomb. And you may remember, like a couple of weeks ago, the last sermon I did on love was about the conversation between Peter and Jesus that almost immediately follows this. Remember, Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I storge you. No, no, Peter, do you agape me? Well, yes, Lord, I, I don't know, I think he says philos the second time. But it takes a couple of times for Peter to get exactly what Jesus is asking. Do you agape me? And remember what the response is if one truly agapes Jesus? Remember? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So this comes right in between those two things that we've, we've talked about uh, either in the narrative of the resurrection and as we talked about love. So I think, thought it'd be a nice bridge back. I'm not quite done with Easter yet. The purple's still up. But more than that, I thought uh, it'd be nice to kind of bridge us back to talking about love. So, you know, Luke's got this, um, I don't know, real luxury. If you get, get to have a sequel in Acts, you get to be a lot more detailed about all the specific stuff. But in John, there's this little kind of teeny version of Pentecost that happens here when Jesus appears to the disciples, breathes on them, and says, receive my spirit. Next week, we're going to dig in on love again, but uh, in this, uh, I don't know, extra week on Easter, I wanted to uh, look at the transition between the resurrection in the Gospel of John and uh, Jesus' interaction with Thomas to help us not only understand his interaction with Peter, but maybe to think a little bit about the intersection between the resurrection and love and brokenness. So I'm going to focus on the concept of, of brokenness today. And uh, I don't know, it really struck me how interesting it is that the resurrected Christ still has his scars. 
I want to reflect a little bit on that. So, of course, you know, and as I preached about before, uh, the Gospel of John likely comes later. And uh, for your uh, nerdy resurrection reminder, there was this intensely significant battle within the church at the time that the Gospel of John was formalized between, I don't know, uh, people who were, we'd say they were what, a Gnostic tendency. They wanted to say that the body was evil, that the spirit was good, that your body was a prison. And as you can imagine, as the early Christian communities like dealing with the idea of the resurrection, the folks on this Gnostic side were awfully skeptical of the idea of the resurrection. They're like, how could God be not only killed, but return in a form that uh, took on a human body? And then the flip side of it, the folks who, uh, I don't know, would eventually represent what we take to be good Christian doctrine, really wanted to insist on the idea that when Jesus rises, Jesus rises in bodily form. And it's something that is written into the resurrection account that, you know, we read in John today. And in fact, just before it, there's this idea that is some, to me at least, beautifully consistent with the characterization of the resurrection in Luke. So we just got through doing this thing about the resurrection in Luke. And if I was going to sum it up, it's something like Jesus goes on a journey to Jerusalem, back to the temple, and then through Jerusalem. And the kind of point of the way we talked about it in Luke was the disciples and the folks who knew and loved Jesus only fully see and recognize him when? Right before the ascension up into heaven. And it's supposed to cue us to the idea that the resurrection is, of course, about defeating death, but it's about so much more than that. It's about, as Luke says, uh, making Israel global or universal inviting all of us into it, inviting each one of us to be uh, sons and and daughters of the kingdom. It's about taking a vision of the kingdom and seeing it not just as defined by Jerusalem and the temple, but instead redefining the temple as the kind of throne of God and redefining the world as the new Israel and redefining each one of us as kind of citizens by adoption in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So the point of the resurrection there, at least in Luke, is to say something like God has remade the world, God has declared the world God's kingdom, and that each one of us has an obligation to do something about its brokenness. Now, for John, it's not exactly the same shtick, but it's really beautiful to read this little kind of transition in John to figure out John's vision of how we think about the resurrection and the kingdom and brokenness. And, you know, it's like historically interesting to think it's about this fight between Gnostic Christians and the folks who eventually kind of defined the character of the doctrine, but it's not just about that. It's, it's a fight that's still with us today. I mean, as a guy who proudly identifies as an evangelical, I'd also say that one of the things that our evangelical brothers and sisters struggle with is how exactly to think about the created goodness of the human body, how exactly to think about the created goodness of the world that God has made, how exactly to think about that we are not only irreparably flawed and fallen, all of which are true, but also that we're made in the image of God and that in the resurrection something happens that takes up all flesh and takes up everybody and takes up the world and changes it and makes it different. So yeah, I mean, this is kind of about the early debate between the Gnostics and other Christian folks, but it's about so much more than that. It's about how we think about the character of the flesh in the context of the resurrection. Now, we see like little historical hints uh, that this is about that fight with the Gnostics. Like the one detail that John plugs in that other folks don't is that uh, right before this, it says that 
the Romans went and paid uh, the religious authorities to say that, or the religious authorities paid the Romans to say that Jesus' body was stolen. And that was like a thing that kind of circulated around for a long time that those Gnostic folks loved. They were like, well, Jesus didn't really rise in the body. His body was just stolen. But John really wants to make the point, and he's really driving home, that this isn't, you know, uh, Jesus' body wasn't stolen, that Jesus is returned in flesh, and that the return of flesh by Jesus is something that is incredibly significant because it's made the universe right again. Because it has taken what is broken, it has taken what is sinful, it has taken what we thought was exclusively defined by its fallenness, and it has made it different. It's redeemed it. It's put it on the path to healing. At resurrection, we say a lot, a lot already, but not yet. But yeah, we are already in a world where the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the, 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 the redemption that is entailed into it is, is a living, breathing, real fact of our reality that responds to all the stuff about how we think about what it means to be a Christian in a broken world and what our obligations are to everybody else. When we say that Jesus rose from the dead and that he returns in a resurrected and fully human body, we're affirming the idea that the divine and human are not separate even after the divine has defeated human death. And it's one of the distinguishing features of Christianity to me, like core one. There are tons of systems that say something like, look, your body is broken, or uh, the source of all pain is connection to the world, or if only you kind of got beyond, I don't know, you, you thought in the now instead of thinking about all the things that are beyond you, or uh, if you kind of went through the cycle of life and death over time and got better and better and better, eventually you'd be able to throw off the body, which is just kind of like this junk that you have to live in, and your soul might merge with the principle of enlightenment or the principle at the center of the universe. And one of the things that's revolutionary about Christian belief and the Christian understanding of the spiritual is it does not see the denial of the material body as a necessity. It sees the body as glorified in its intimate connection with the spiritual in the resurrection. It sees the incarnate God who has defeated death and in doing so has removed the stain of death from the human body and opens our bodies, our persons, our communities into a participation in the eternal and divine life of the Trinity itself. So for all those folks who are like Christianity as a weird vision of the body, they're not wrong, but they're not right theologically in the sense that there are a few other systems of thinking about God that are in some way about anything other than separating us from the material reality where the resurrection of Jesus Christ throws us towards the pain and the brokenness and the persistence of death and materiality and says that we have an obligation to do what we can to be Jesus' hands, feet, and face to the world. That's bad news for the Gnostics that John was writing about. And funnily enough, I was doing the, um, the voice uh, input for this one, and every time I said Gnostics, it said knobheads. <laughs> Which I agree with theologically, but whatever. But more than that, it's about affirming the fact that in Jesus' resurrection, there's a declaration of victory for the world. There's a declaration of newness for the world. There is a declaration that responds to the fact that all of creation is groaning for his presence. And yes, of course, there's no doubt that we are broken in sin. Yes, of course, death holds sway for now. But the point is that in Jesus' coming and in Jesus' resurrection, the point and the end and the 
conclusion to the story that telos of the human is not simply for us to kind of shed our bodies and reach a more perfect spiritual reality, but instead it's to take what is finite about us and help it to participate in and to invite it to be a part of the infinite kingdom of Christ in, that is, in which everything that has fallen is full and, fully and ultimately redeemed. Now, let me be clear here, like, I don't think then this is a different narrative from the one we saw in Luke. Luke wants to emphasize that idea of the world is kind of now Israel and the temple is in the person of Jesus Christ who sits in heaven at the throne of God. But the thing that makes the narrative, at least to me, so similar is that John looks at it in a much more specific, much more detailed, much more granular form in making the argument that and demonstrating the idea that in Jesus Christ we are all invited into a new kingdom and that each one of us individually is reached out to and ministered to in our failings and our misunderstandings and all those things. And that's, I think, what I take from Jesus's appearance, both to the disciples and to Thomas. Now, see, the world's not fully been set right yet. And of course, we know already and not yet. But for those who think that, uh, you know, the question is not what is Jesus saying about the brokenness of the world? Jesus is saying about the brokenness of the world that it's not our job to abandon the world. It's not our job to hate the world. Instead, it's our job to love and redeem the world and to declare the character of Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. It changes how we think about our obligations to each other. It, thinks about, it changes how we think about our obligations to him. And it changes how we think about our obligations to the sin and suffering around us. Okay, so look at 19 and 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, you know, the disciples are afraid of the religion, ruling religious authorities for good reason. They've locked the door. And, you know, this is kind of our first big cue because uh, the locked door doesn't prevent Jesus from getting in. So potentially a win for the Gnostics. They're like, he doesn't obey the rules of biology or physics anymore or architecture or whatever. And I don't know, it not only maybe he moves through doors, maybe he's really good at picking locks, but I imagine that this is the first in the case of the uh, gospel accounts that, uh, you know, the Gnostics might point to as Jesus is not being quite human in the same way that the rest of us are. And so, uh uh-huh, say the Gnostics, and uh uh-huh, say the people that want a vision of Jesus who is essentially magical. Jesus's body does not behave in the same way that other bodies do, and you might as well just give in to the idea that it's only a body in a kind of trivial sense, that it's a spiritualized version of a body, that, uh, you know, it's the real essence of God in hearing in a body that's something like a costume or like clothing. And you know, that's not just something Gnostics believe. Ask Beth about our trip to a church in Chicago one time where we heard an entire sermon about the idea that the point of the incarnation was that Jesus essentially put on a body like you might put on clothes and that you could cast that body right off and that the divinity of God was the main thing that was at stake in the resurrection. But if the body is immaterial to the per- character of Jesus as a person, as Paul puts it, what hope do we have in the resurrection. What is our hope in the resurrection? What hope do we have in the defeat of death that we understand is different from the one that is simply from us shedding off our flesh clothing and having our souls merged with God? Why is it that John goes to such incredible extent to demonstrate, and Luke goes to such incredible extent to demonstrate that Jesus resurrected has a human body, that Jesus resurrected not only eats fish, but, well, still has wounds. 
I think it's a way of saying Jesus' resurrection is not like a parlor trick. It's not a way of saying, hey guys, don't worry about death and joy and beauty and the love and all those things that uh, are embodied in the incarnation is that it takes our bodies and the material world and the people that exist in it. You don't have to worry about them. What you have to worry about is, I don't know, getting the right spiritual propositions or finding the right point of spiritual unity. But the point of the resurrection to say is each one of those things are holy and worthy of our efforts to love and reach out to the world to bind up what is broken in flesh because it too has been raised with Christ. I always tell this story about Athanasius every two years, but I just love it so much because I think my boy Athanasius got it right when he talks about the character of the Incarnation. So don't stop me if you've heard this one before because some of you have. (laughs) But I don't know. Athanasius says, imagine a king coming to a village. And like, you know, we don't have the same sense of this, but imagine that you're like a teeny little town out on the road somewhere and the king comes in and, you know, the village, of course, is different right off the bat because maybe the town leaders put up the banners and maybe they kick all the beggars out of the streets and boy, doesn't the city look nice. And, you know, the city celebrates the existence of the king. But Athanasius says, if you really believe in the idea of a king, if you really believe in the sense of a king who is appointed by God, if you really believe in the sense of a person who represents God's leadership on earth, the fact that that king would take residence in that town does not only honor the town, but it lifts up every other house in the town. Because it implies that the king could go to any one of those houses and take up residence in it. And as Athanasius says, when that king leaves the city, the character of the city is changed permanently. It's made different It's made glorified. It's made a place in which the very essence of God might be contained. It's different than it was before. It's more royal in some sense. And that's his point about Jesus' taking on human body, that Jesus taking on a human body doesn't only uh, demonstrate some trick that allows God to say God's not constrained by anything. It's not only about an exchange or a contract that fixes the problem of sin. It is those things, but it's more. That's that because God was in a body, because the infinite was contained in the finite, we know that in every finite and specific case that there too is the possibility of and the presence of and the signature of the logos in the world. I mean, we don't have a particularly great sense of this idea. Maybe if you're from Hillsborough and you used to eat at that one Mexican restaurant that everyone said George Washington slept at. And you're like, you're eating your enchiladas and you're like, man, I can't believe the guy who crossed the river and founded the country uh, may have been here. And you overture as you contemplate the fact that he'd stayed there. And this was like a weird hybrid piece of American history. But for the folks who would have thought differently about royalty than we did, Athanasius's point and John's point that a king could embody embody a human body says something much more important, much weighty, much bigger. It says that there is a significant and special connection that the king had made the king's self low enough that we could be bound up in and grabbed up in and finally and fully redeemed. See, that that's why I think Jesus shows the disciples his hands and sight. He wants them to know that he's not just an apparition or illusion. He wants them to know that he is the same guy that they say, I die on that cross not too long ago. The wounds are still there. But I think it's more than that. I think it's so much more than that. The point of Jesus' wounds still being there is so much more than a refutation of folks who think that the body doesn't matter. I take it, I take uh, just personally like incredible and near overwhelmingly beautiful solace in the fact that Jesus' wounds appear on his resurrected body. 
for decades, maybe even a century, Trey can back me on this, like there was this debate in the church about what the resurrected body would look like. Are you like the last body that you had before you died? Are you restored to your 20s when you could bench 350 pounds? Are you a teeny little infant? Who knows what the resurrected body looks like? But this debate like, got folks really mad at each other for a really long time. I don't know the answer to it, but what I do know is that the wounds that killed Jesus are still present when the disciples encounter him in risen form. Now look, nowadays we are used to saying that wounds are a part of your person. Nowadays we're used to saying something like it's your scars that make you. They might even make you beautiful. And if I'm going to be totally honest with you all, I'm kind of ambivalent on that one. I am, because on one hand, like, there's this sense that folks can luxuriate in the beauty of their woundedness and not see the power of redemption that is offered to them. We live in a culture where the ability to display your scar is kind of a big deal. It's kind of a form of currency that gives us, not I don't know, power or leverage or whatever, but at the same time, there is something about the idea that Jesus demonstrating the scar doesn't luxuriate in the scar or doesn't present the scar as beautiful, but instead it presents the scar as overcome. It presents the scar as something that does not have a durable power over his person or his body. There's another way of thinking about this that says that we kind of ignore our scars or repress our scars or try not to think about our scars and somehow that makes us more healthy. But the truth is they are a part of you and they do define some element of, in character of your person. The model of Jesus, of the risen Jesus coming with those scars, with those wounds in his side and in his hands, to me is a way of talking about, thinking about wounds as something that are redeemed, something that is not in and of themselves beautiful, but that is made beautiful in the resurrection and in the redemption. And I'm about to say a bunch of words wrong, but the only way I can think about it is to borrow an analogy from Japanese art. (laughs) There's a Christian artist and painter who's made a big deal about this over the last years that I love, Makoto Fujimura. And he makes all these really beautiful prints that speak to the power of resurrection and of grace. But my favorite, my favorite of his works are a kind of art drawn from Japanese pottery called Kintsugi. Anybody else know Kintsugi? Dan, Linda May? Kintsugi. Who knows Kintsugi? Okay, we got some Kintsugi people. Good. Just I read the guy's book. Yeah, well, good for you. But yeah, and, and like the point that he made, Kintsugi is this art form where an artist takes a broken pot and then puts it back together using gold to suture the pieces. And it's beautiful because the point of it is that though that pot may be broken, it is able to be made more beautiful than it was before. Because we see where it is broken, and we see the gold that demonstrates the places where it has been put back together. I read some artists that said the pot gets stronger at the end. I'm not sure if that's true, but I'd like to believe that it's the case. Kintsugi is a way of saying that it's not about making our brokenness 
beautiful in the sense of reveling in it, nor is it the sense of hiding in our brokenness, but instead it is the presence of the gold and the pot that shows us the story behind it, that shows us that what was simply shattered ceramic or porcelain before had been turned into something new and beautiful and in which the things that had been so devastating to it can be presented as something that is not simply fixed but redeemed. Not simply made functional again, but made even more beautiful. The brokenness becomes part of the beauty, not because brokenness is beautiful. Brokenness is terrible, but instead, in marking the places where the pot is held together once again, the shame of what was simple shattering is replaced by a gilded line that binds the thing together again. That is the resurrected Jesus, who shows up to his disciples with his wounds in place. That is how Jesus, I imagine, might talk about the brokenness of the resurrected body that has the same wounds. And I think it inspires us, bless you, to also think about our own wounds. Not to make a fetish of them and not to ignore them, but to invite the binding presence of the Holy Spirit into our lives and to see the purpose and the power and the direction and the will of God as worked out in all our glory and in all our shame and in all our brokenness and in all our beauty. And that brokenness can be made beautiful, though it's not necessarily beautiful, is a testimony to and a proof of that, that we can be made different, we can be made beautiful, we can be made more useful, we can be made fulfilled. And I don't think that it is a surprise that Jesus reveals the beauty of his healed brokenness the moment before he says in verses 21 through 23, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. With that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The Holy Spirit here is the gold that brings the pot together. He has passed it on to his community of believers and says that in that, that they have the power to make things right. They have the power to redeem things by relying on the Holy Spirit, which he has given him. And though he may be gone and there may be a wound there for a little bit, it is the gold that binds us together with the kingdom of heaven. The world is broken and the brokenness of the world is something that we should mourn, but we should only mourn it transitorily because it's not going to be broken forever. And in it, Christ will not only himself be remade and has been remade, but will remake us in a manner that is stronger and more beautiful, not by hiding the points of our brokenness, but by binding them up. He is and will be the one who makes us whole, who sends his spirit together, binding us in the absence of our direct bodily communion with him in a larger body that is the body of Christ that binds up the broken pieces and makes them beautiful and cements the character of the kingdom. I don't think it's a surprise that John ends this little pericope by having Jesus address Thomas. Now, I always like Thomas, if I'm honest. Accidentally rolled the turtle. <laughs> Oddly topical, Evangeline. I don't think it's a surprise that uh, he, he then addresses Thomas. And like I said, I like Thomas because, I don't know, you all know me. I, I think I'd probably be a Thomas in that context. Like, I'd be thinking, how could anything be beautiful after you witnessed that death? And I don't think that there's, uh, you know, we're supposed to think that there's a falling in Thomas's faith or something that's wrong with Thomas. It's just that Thomas, is a, a, he's a realist. And, you know, maybe Thomas is even the most well-adjusted of the disciples in some sense. Like, he's unwilling to give into delusion that everything's going to be okay in the face of the cross. And I, I can imagine myself giving my Thomas speech, like, 
don't know. I'm sure if the others came in and said to me, hey, we've seen the Lord, I'd say something like, hey, guys, look, I hear you. Wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus walked through that door? Like that, that would be incredible. We all want that now more than anything. But we saw him die through a method that no one ever comes back from. I loved him as much as anybody, but we just have to be realistic about this. Has anyone ever come back from it and being in a tomb for three days? I know it's hard, but the really loving thing for me to say right now, guys, is that we have to move on and maybe try and achieve the purposes that he set us for. Can you imagine yourself saying that? Imagine yourself even seeing that as an element of being rational and loving and caring. And so he says, verse 25 through 29, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Week goes by and the disciples are in the house again. Thomas is with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus once again comes in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and God. Then Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't think Jesus is chastising Thomas here. I think that what he cares about is that folks have always, I don't know, he's always, Thomas had always had some sense of belief in him, I'd imagine, and feels broken by the just utter desperation of the cross. And, you know, Thomas seeing him, despite all the different ways you could account for this phenomenon, Thomas could say it's a collective hallucination inspired by grief, maybe it's a Jesus body double, maybe it's an AI deep fake, whatever. Thomas has believed in the past, and he is, has believed because he has seen the risen Christ, and he, he, he's able to trace the outlines of that golden wound seeing the char- in seeing the character of the risen Christ. And more than that, he sees a potential for a kingdom that is bound together out of its brokenness and made more beautiful. The beautiful thing about this passage is that despite all the great art about it and despite all the great pictures of it in you know, the history of, of, of Western art, we see or think or imagine Thomas putting his finger in the wound, but that's not what the scripture says. What the scripture says is that Jesus invites him to, and maybe it's no mission, maybe it's something that just didn't get included, but I'd like to read it as literally as possible and say that as soon as Jesus shows him and gives him the offer to be able and reach out and see the evidence, Thomas kneels down and says, my Lord and my God. Because Jesus has shown him the character and the beauty of his rising in which those wounds have been turned into something different. As I got thinking about it and imagining the case where Thomas doesn't jam his finger into Jesus's wound. The other thing that it struck me is that if you read the Gospel of John, post the resurrection, even I think if you read almost the entirety of it and you subtract John the Baptist and Jesus himself, this is the first time that I can find in the Gospel of John where someone calls Jesus God. Man, that Thomas has seen that. And that, of course, we hold him accountable for not having the same faith as the disciples, yet in that moment where he sees the wound on the risen Christ, he is the first to go to his knees and declare, my Lord and my God. Man, it's beautiful that Jesus was able to see 
what it was that held Thomas back, but that to Thomas's credit, Thomas is able to see the presence of the wound and the presence of the resurrection and to know, as no one has so far known in the Gospel of John, that not only does it testify to Jesus as Lord, but it testifies to a God who is risen and who has taken on the worst that the Romans had to offer, taken on the worst that death has to offer, taken on everything that the orders of sin and destruction has to offer, and there's evidence on his body that not only has he taken them on, but that he was defeated him and that he lives. Not even Peter calls him God when it gets to that conversation between Jesus and Peter afterwards. So I feel Thomas's doubt, but I think it's also important that we see that Jesus sees the brokenness in Thomas and presents to him a vision of his own wound, of his own injury, and ultimately of his own rising that makes him whole again too. Amen. Questions or talk?